You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. In less than two days, recreational marijuana will be legal across the country. In this province, more than 170 private stores are vying for a license. But by Wednesday, Green Day, there will only be one government marijuana store open for business. Tanya Beja is live in Vancouver with more on the countdown. And Tanya, the frustration some entrepreneurs are feeling. That's right, Chris. Dispensaries are facing a lot of uncertainty as they wait to find out when or even if they can operate legally. It's a bud lover's paradise, but Eden is shutting down. Manager Vanessa Danderan selling whatever product she has left. We are advising clients to stock up, especially if it's a product that's super integral to their day-to-day -day health and well-being. The Vancouver Marijuana Dispensary laid off staff and will temporarily close as the company waits for a license. Cutting corners isn't going to get you there faster. Our intention is not to, you know, um, turn our nose up on the regulatory practices. We want to be a part of it. British Columbians can legally light up on Wednesday, but only one store in Kamloops has a license to sell. 173 others have applied. What we are doing is uh, putting in place a legal uh, cannabis regime. Um, I said it's not going to happen overnight and it is going to take some time. Not good enough for the Liberal opposition, questioning why BC lags behind its neighbours. Can the minister explain his timeline to match the 100 stores Alberta anticipates will be open this month? We are not going to apologize for doing this right, Honourable Speaker. You're telling the black market, guess what? Nothing really changes for you. That's millions of dollars that we're also forgiving that could be going to the provincial government in regards to revenue to pay for health care and education. Don Breer is keeping his door open to customers while he fights the process in court. We're hoping that common sense and good judgment will prevail and that we can come to the negotiation tables and discuss how to distribute this product reasonably and sensibly. Businesses caught selling weed without provincial approval could face fines of up to $100,000. Well, Tanya, with so many of the businesses expected to close shop, when do they expect to be open again? Well, those we spoke with, Chris, said they have no timeline, no idea when they can reopen. They also don't know what they will be able to supply or sell if they're granted a license. Chris, back to you. All right. We'll be learning a lot over the following weeks and months here. Thanks very much, Tanya. Now, when it comes to enforcement, police say they're ready. The legal recreational use of marijuana will be new for Canadians. But enforcing the laws around impaired driving and illegal production and distribution is the same as it's ever been. Grace Key explains how officers have been preparing and the challenges that lie ahead. Don't expect a major crackdown from police on Wednesday when recreational marijuana becomes legal in Canada. That message from the president of the Canadian Association of Police Chiefs, Vancouver Chief Constable Adam Palmer. And you're probably not going to see a whole big change with regard to what the police are doing or what anybody else is doing. This is going to be an approach that's going to be measured, take time till the new, you know, the laws will come into effect. Chief Palmer says the police will be ready when it comes to cracking down on impaired drivers. Right now, there are 13,000 officers trained across Canada in standard field sobriety testing, with the number rising to 20,000 in the next several years. And 833 drug recognition experts throughout Canada, with at least another 500 in the next five years. 
Police may see an increase in the number of impaired driving by drugs on our roads once cannabis is legalized, but we have well-established techniques to detect impairment that have successfully passed the test of the courts in Canada for many years now. Powerful new rules will make it easier for police to detect and the courts to charge drivers with drug-impaired driving. Many lawyers expect those new rules to be challenged in court. If you have between two and five nanograms of THC or higher in your system, then you're guilty of an offense and you're driving, right? So you don't have to prove that a driver is impaired anymore in order to secure a criminal conviction for drug-impaired driving. Palmer says different infractions will involve different agencies and response times depending on the risk to public safety. The marijuana is important, but it is not the most important thing going on in the country right now. There's, you know, fentanyl, for example, kills 11 Canadians a day, and marijuana certainly doesn't. Grace Key, Global News. So with legalization right around the corner, here's the 101 on how you buy it and where you can smoke it. And of course, much of it depends on where you live. You have to be 19 to buy pot in Canada, except in Alberta and Quebec, where the legal age is 18. You can buy online from government-run sites in all provinces. If you'd rather buy in person in B.C., there will be a mix of private and government stores. In Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Newfoundland and Labrador, pot will be sold at private sector stores only. In Quebec, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and PEI, pot will be sold at government-run stores only. While in Ontario, you're out of luck. Private sector stores won't open until April 2019. The provinces are split on where you can smoke pot. In B.C., Alberta, Ontario, Quebec, and Nova Scotia, you'll be allowed to light up in the same spaces as cigarette smokers. But in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, New Brunswick, PEI, Newfoundland, and Labrador, you can't smoke pot in public at all. If you want to grow marijuana, you're allowed four plants per household in all provinces except in Quebec, where you are not allowed to grow any at all. Now, if you'd like to see a roadmap to see what the future of legal pot will look like, all you have to do is head south on Highway 99 until you hit the U.S. border. It's been four years since Washington State legalized marijuana, and our Paul Johnson has a look at the impact. If you're looking for clues about the shape of things to come in the era of legal weed, just take a trip down to Blaine, Washington where that state's pot economy is maturing with few gripes from officials. The decriminalization of marijuana, uh, by all ways of judging it, I believe largely has been a success. Before legalization in Washington state, there were fears that all kinds of terrible things were going to happen, from a spike in teen addictions, to family breakdown, to more impaired driving. Several years into it, none of that has really happened. And even the cities that have pot stores are saying there aren't really a lot of downsides. I think you would have expected it to be a bit of a strange thing, but it actually has kind of just gone along without much of a blip in the radar at all. Michael Jones is Blaine's city manager. With two stores and a couple of producers, the worst problem that's come to his attention is a skunky odor sometimes but no hit to the city's reputation. The reality is that people were doing that before. They're just buying it somewhere else. But drive a few miles east of Blaine to the much more conservative city of Linden, and you can see why Washington's experiment seems to be working. Local control. Well, they outlawed dancing here for years and years, and that 
<laughs> there are no pot stores on the orderly streets of Linden because the city passed a moratorium on retail sales. And that suits many here just fine. I've seen too many issues and problems with the legalized, and so I'm, I'm, I'm very proud to be from Linden and that this is a stand they have taken. So here's a hint for how to do a harmonious rollout of legal pot. Make it available for those who do, but don't force it onto those who don't. Paul Johnson, Global News, Whatcom County. Now, a challenging early morning wake-up call for Surrey fire crews battling a pair of two-alarm fires. An auto-wrecking business near Scott Road and 110th Avenue was heavily damaged in this fire. Crews managed to save an adjacent pallet manufacturer and several cars. Two people living in a suite above the business escaped. And while they were fighting that fire, another two-alarm blaze broke out at a home near Cedar Drive and 124th Street. Thankfully, no one was hurt in this fire either. No cause determined in either fire so far. A surprising turn of events today during closing arguments in the murder trial of Japanese student Natsumi Kogawa. The accused, William Schneider, pleading guilty to one of the two charges against him, but not the most serious crime. Our Romina Dea was in court, and Romina Schneider pled guilty to interfering with human remains. A stunning admission, Chris, but the jury still needs to determine William Schneider's fate on one count of second-degree murder. Crown told the jury, use your common sense, weigh the evidence as a whole. Natsumi Kagawa did not overdose or commit suicide while she was out on a date. Schneider intentionally killed her when he smothered her with his hands. Crown's evidence, Schneider confessed to killing Kagawa. He told police where to find her body and he tried to take his own life after what he did. Defense says yes, Schneider put the body in the suitcase, but the jury could infer Kagawa died. He panicked. He made poor decisions. He's a homeless man with a drug addiction. Best evidence, a pathologist could not determine a cause of death, says defense. Not a bruise, not an injury, no DNA evidence linking Schneider to the death. A challenging case for the jury. The judge will deliver instructions to the jury Tuesday morning. Deliberations will begin after that. Back to you. Thanks for the update, Ramina Dea. Right now, though, there was a time when homelessness would be near the bottom of the list of concerns in the Victoria area, but not anymore, as we continue our focus on the big issues facing B.C. cities in the upcoming civic election. Richard Zussman tells us finding a place for people to live has become one of the major talking points for candidates. When it comes to Victoria Mayor Lisa Helps and the way she's run City Hall for the last four years, everyone has an opinion. I certainly think she's well-intentioned. I don't like her. And I never voted before if I came out and vote now against her. I honestly don't know how anybody else may handle it better. She's been uh, a little wishy-washy on contacting the public on lots of stuff. I know there's been lots of controversy around her. Controversy is the removal of the Sir John A. Macdonald statue from City Hall. Helps applaud it for her work towards First Nations reconciliation, but question for how she went about getting rid of the statue. There's the citywide ban on plastic bags, a flashpoint between business and the environment, and the issue voters bring up more than any other. Bike lanes. Candidates are out on the doorstep saying they're hearing very clear and strong messages, either support 
our opposition. There's no ambivalence. Four years ago helps won by just 89 votes, but none of her main challengers are running again. This year, Stephen Hammond, Michael Gagan and Bruce McGeegan are looking for votes. The look of Victoria is also changing. A formerly sleepy city, now with more growth downtown, rising housing prices second in the province only to Metro Vancouver, and a homeless population that reached a fever pitch in 2016 with a tent city on the courthouse lawn. We do need to still continue to deal with issues of uh, people who are on the street and the impact that they have. We need to make sure that our public spaces are safe and welcoming, especially for families. Then there's the one political issue that never seems to go away. We need to get amalgamation done because we're just wasting time having all these different little fiefdoms. Lucky for those that care about amalgamation, the issue's on the ballot this year. Sort of. Voters are asked if they want to spend $250,000 to further investigate amalgamating Victoria and Saanich. Richard Zussman, Global News. And if you'd like to know what Victoria's mayoral candidates all think about the capital region's major issues, just go to our website at globaltv.ca slash bc. It was an historic bring your baby to work day in the BC legislature. And we will begin with the Ministry of Energy, Mines and Petroleum Resources, <laughs> who's going to introduce us to one of the cutest little people on the planet. Energy Minister Michelle Mungo bringing her newborn Xavier to work at the legislature today. It's the first time ever that a BC MLA has been allowed to bring a baby into the chamber. Last March, the Assembly changed the rules so that children, newborns to two years old, will be able to appear accompanied by a parent. I want to introduce the house to uh, the newest addition to my family. This is Xavier Andrew Roman Mattieschen. He came into the world on July 21st at 10.04 in the morning after uh, a mere 12 hours of labor. And uh, he came in at 8 pounds, 9 ounces, and he's been growing like a weed ever since. So I want to thank everybody in this house for making this moment possible and for making our democratic institutions more family-friendly so that uh, anybody can run and they don't have to choose between parenthood and being an effective MLA. Uh, I think that makes our democracy stronger. Congratulations to Minister Mungle, and you'll notice the boy also met the legislature dress code. Well done. For the second time in 18 months, the Vancouver Aquarium's Marine Mammal Rescue Center is looking after a stellar sea lion that's been injured by gunshots to the head. The male stellar sea lion was found near Euclid, alive but unresponsive. Even though he's severely emaciated at about 350 kilograms, he's the biggest animal ever admitted to the center. Preliminary exams showed at least one bullet lodged in his skull, although the team will continue to perform x-rays and ultrasounds to find the extent of injuries and best course of treatment. He's been nicknamed Yuki after the area in which he was found, wishing him a speedy recovery. Now, the explosive growth of marijuana valuations, especially for the company Tilray, has a lot of people wondering if they should be putting their money in as an investment here as well. Let's get some advice before you do that from Andrew, who joins us now, Anne. Yeah, Chris, I guess the question is, are you a risk taker? Because mm. everyone's saying it's pretty high risk. It certainly <laughs> seems that way, wild fluctuations. Definitely. Right? Cannabis stocks have been capturing the attention of a lot of investors in the Canadian marketplace, but is investing in cannabis a good investment? Well, it really depends on who you ask. If you plan to invest in the marijuana 
marijuana sector, you need to do your homework and acknowledge you are in a high-risk investment. For starters, you may want to talk to an investment professional, know the company you're thinking of investing in, and get familiar with the financials of the company and what they are positioned for. Know where you are putting your money. Some financial advisors suggest you may want to invest a very small section of your portfolio so you are properly diversified. To run in and jump in with both feet into the sector could be, as we mentioned, extremely high risk. The risk, you know, it's everywhere. If you look at some of these names and some of these companies that trade at such excessive valuations to how much they're bringing in in terms of revenue, uh, many of them aren't even making a profit yet. So you're basically betting on a company uh, that's positioned or investors think is going to see huge, huge astronomical growth. And if that were to not come true, I mean, that's the risk is that these stock prices being at high valuations now will come back to some more normal level. You know, the thing to factor in is that we have a legalization date of October 17th. Then after a quarter or two, we're going to start to see the companies report what kind of revenue or how much money they're actually making and whether these valuations are justified. There's been talk about a $2 billion cannabis industry in Canada, $6 billion industry, and their sales figures will begin to tell a story of how big this marketplace can actually be and what kind of profits some of these companies might be able to turn. Yeah, that's right. So again, it really is a wait and see approach as we discover what happens a half year or a quarter year down the road after these companies show how much revenue they are able to generate. Either way, you could be in for a wild ride. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can contact me. There's my email address at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. Legalization less than 30 hours away. I know some people are counting down. Thanks very much. And for that. A pioneer of the computer age has died. Paul Allen, co-founder of Microsoft with his childhood friend Bill Gates, passed away today at the age of 65. Earlier this month, Allen announced the cancer he'd been treated for in 2009 had returned. He was an avid sports fan, owning the Portland Trailblazers and the Seattle Seahawks. Donald Trump got a first-hand look at the Florida Panhandle today, promising help for the victims of Hurricane Michael. To see this uh, personally, is, it's very tough, very, very tough. It's Trump's first visit to the area. Recovery teams spent their fifth day sifting through debris, hoping for a miracle. The death toll stands at 17, with some three dozen people still missing. Relief supplies are pouring into a region that could be without power for as much as a month. Meantime, Donald Trump appears to be signaling he'll accept the explanation from Saudi Arabia on the disappearance of a journalist. Two weeks after he vanished, the Saudis reportedly are preparing a statement that Jamal Khashoggi died during an interrogation that went wrong. President Trump, after calling the Saudi king today, seeming to buy his explanation that if Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi was killed inside the Saudi consulate in Turkey... The hitmen were rogue killers, not working for the regime. The king firmly denied any knowledge of it. He didn't really know. Maybe, I I don't want to get into his mind, but it sounded to me like maybe these could have been rogue killers. Who knows? But it was only tonight, 13 days after Kashkoji disappeared there, that the Saudis let Turkish police inside hours after a cleaning crew entered. And tonight, the Saudi leaders are discussing a plan to admit that Kashkoji was killed after entering the consulate. Three people with knowledge of the situation tell NBC News. One says during an interrogation that went wrong. 
Asked about that, the president called it so far just a rumor. He's sending Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to Saudi Arabia to get answers. Despite the king's denials today, experts say nothing would happen at a Saudi consulate that his son, the powerful crown prince, did not order. It would be inconceivable that such an operation would be run by the Saudis without the knowledge of the day-to-day decision-maker of Saudi Arabia. That's uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Congress now demanding that the White House stop the Saudis from buying billions in U.S. weapons. But Mr. Trump says that would hurt American workers. Still, critics say the president ignores the Saudis' terrible human rights record, unlawful killings, torture, and arbitrary arrests, just as he embraces a rogues gallery of dictators like Putin, Duterte in the Philippines, Erdogan in Turkey, even saying he fell in love with Kim Jong-un. Telling CBS's 60 Minutes... ...presides over a cruel kingdom of repression, gulags, starvation... Uh, reports that he had his half-brother assassinated, slave labor, public executions. This is a guy you love. I know all these things. I mean, I'm not a baby. I know all these things. In health matters tonight, it's estimated that 5 million people across Canada are living with dyslexia, a hereditary condition that can make learning and life a challenge. As Jennifer Palmer reports, advocates say diagnosis and treatment is still falling far behind the need. On. <laughs> Using all those strategies. It's life-changing help that not everyone gets. Digging. One in five kids live with dyslexia, and they're struggling through school without the appropriate tools being given to them to learn to read and write. We definitely need to bring up more awareness about dyslexia. Teachers aren't trained to recognize dyslexia in our classrooms, and there isn't enough awareness about how dyslexia how common dyslexia is. October is International Dyslexia Awareness Month, and for the first time, Port Coquitlam City Hall, along with other landmarks like BC Place, will be lit red this week. Nationally, the effort is known as Market Red by Dyslexia Canada. The crimson color was chosen to reflect a teacher's red correction marks on an assignment. Not enough attention is given to dyslexia in this province. Dyslexia is invisible. But dyslexia also affects a child's self-esteem and forces some parents to remortgage their homes to pay the thousands of dollars a year needed to get their child private help. The education ministry says its purpose is to enable students to acquire knowledge and skills to contribute to society. Many parents dispute that. The province says it's doing a funding model review. BC has not really looked at this in a long, long time. Um, The the needs and the acuity of, of kids with learning disabilities is certainly not going down. If anything, it's it's, uh, it's increasing, uh, and, uh, and so we're looking for a way to, to, to be more efficient, but also to be more focused. But for Kathy, she says the help is needed now, and that dyslexia needs to be funded directly, not as part of a block of funding for schools. She says kids with learning disabilities often don't get what they need. If you could help that child feel successful in kindergarten and in grade one, they will try so much harder, um, and also you want to set them up for success. Jennifer Palma, Global News. And you can find more information about tonight's lighted up red event in Port Coquitlam or on the Market Red campaign on our website. And we have a NewsHour follow-up now to our story about the huge waiting list for autism assessment, an official diagnosis that families need in order to get funding for therapy and other services. As Catherine Urquhart reports, the health ministry has just released numbers that show how bad the situation has become. 
An estimated 60,000 British Columbians live with autism. That number, sure to grow. Global News has accessed shocking new data from the health ministry, which shows a huge increase in the number of children waiting for an assessment. In 2013-14, 1,700 kids were waiting. Last year, more than 2,000. Now, more than 3,200 children under 19 are waiting to get assessed for autism. I absolutely agree that wait time is too long. Uh, I think it's developed really over the last four or five years. What's this? That cue translates to an average wait of 55 and a half weeks, critical time when it comes to helping a child with a neurodevelopmental condition. Costs of doing a pre-diagnostic intervention or really, really early intervention, um, you're going to save the government so much money in the long run. The health ministry says it recently increased funding by $1.2 million, allowing for 438 additional assessments. It also increased the number of assessors from 44 to 52. Still, those weights could be all but eliminated if private facilities were utilized at a cost of about $3,000 per child. Um, there's been conversations throughout the years. Monarch House has been um, open for almost 10 years now, so over the course of 10 years we've engaged the government several times. Any thought to contracting out to private uh, assessors? Well, right now we're dramatically increasing the numbers, so this is a significant one-year increase. I don't exclude any options. On average, children are diagnosed with autism at age seven, often when entering school. Now, the extensive delays for assessments threaten to worsen outcomes for some of BC's most vulnerable children. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Get ready for a few months of royal baby fever. Prince Harry and Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, kicking off their tour of Australia with a bang, announcing they're expecting their first child. The baby news broke as Prince Harry and Meghan Markle arrived in Australia for their first overseas tour together. That's fabulous. We were very pleased. Yeah. We knew it was coming soon. <laughs> Kensington Palace announced the baby is due in the spring and said royals are delighted to share the happy news with the public. Shortly after Harry and Meghan got engaged last year, the BBC asked them about having children. Not, not currently, no. Um, <laughs> no, of course, you know, I think, um, you know, one, one, th one step at a time and hopefully we'll, we'll start a family in the near future. Harry, I give you this ring. Ever since their wedding at Windsor Castle in May, pregnancy rumors have swirled. Some speculated the Duchess was hiding her baby bump last Friday when she and Harry returned to St. George's Chapel to watch Princess Eugenie marry her prince. The family of three will live here on the grounds of Kensington Palace in a two-bedroom cottage. They'll be across the street from Prince William and Kate, who have three children of their own. They'll just be able to play together and, and raise their kids and have a wonderful upbringing. Palace officials say Meghan's mother, Doria Ragland, is thrilled with the news and looks forward to welcoming her first grandchild. The baby will be seventh in line to the throne and Queen Elizabeth's eighth great-grandchild. Gwen Baumgartner, CBS News, London. The Ohio State University marching band does it again, this time with a tribute to a dance craze your kids probably know very well. Coming up right after the forecast, and we'll check in with Christy always, right now. I, I know you call know it the, the zipper. You can do it. No, I can't. No, I don't think so. Well, that's as close what as. What is it called? 
It's called it's the, the floss. Floss, right? The floss. floss. It's not the zipper. My my son would be so mad at me right now. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> These guys hard at work right now. Thanks to Shelly for sending us that photo from Calta's Lake. Cute little guy, that's for sure. And uh, fantastic colors right now. Again, the cranberry harvest from Richmond. Thanks to Tracy for that one. With the blue sky right now, it's making the red so vi- vibrant. And it's just a sea of red, really. And, of course, the uh, fall uh, yellows and oranges and... And, uh, reds. Thanks to Bonnie for that one. Have you been out for a walk yet? Have you been out enjoying this beautiful weather? I know we have a stretch of seven days on the way and I, that's what I'm telling you in the forecast. But I almost don't want to tell you that because I want you to get out tomorrow and the next day. Don't leave it to the last day, please. Now is the time. Look at it outside. Sensational. Now, as soon as the sun sets or it even drops in the horizon a little bit, temperatures cool off significantly and we see the cooler temperatures in the morning, uh, but it, it was nice and warm during the day. 21 degrees away from the water for the next two, 17 near the water. Bit of a dip on Thursday, and I'll show you why in a second, but we rebound as we head into the weekend. These are incredible conditions. A good four degrees above seasonal for this time of year, but yes, cold at night uh, because the nights are much longer, and we'll see that chilly area in the morning, so we are seeing patchy fog and frost that you can see on the uh, fence there, so we'll see patchy frost as well over the next several days, especially for those of you in the interior. So watch for icy conditions. But yes, a sunny week ahead as that ridge of high pressure holds strong. There's your forecast across the north. So we're into the teens. Uh, some areas like Fort St. John, 17, incredible. Down through the south, Merritt, 20 degrees. Kamloops, 17. Soyuz, 18. But we're at about minus one, minus two overnight for some of these areas. South coast, will see four degrees overnight, 21 degrees away from the water. And that will be for the next two. So Tuesday, Wednesday looking like the warmest. But Thursday, the ridge breaks down a little bit. So cooler and a little bit more cloud. But we rebound over the weekend. Incredible conditions. So don't leave it till the weekend. Try and get out for these couple of days. And I'll leave you with this nice shot from Kelowna. This is the Japanese gardens there. That's beautiful. Thanks very much, Christy. Well, the Ohio State University Marching Band has a well-earned reputation for raising the bar. And they have done it again. The band is known around the world for its complicated choreography and during Saturday's halftime show, they actually pulled off the popular dance, The Floss. Band members forming three giant stick figures doing the dance while they played Walk the Moon's Shut Up and Dance. Of course, they can only move so fast carrying their instruments, so here's what it looks like on Fast Forward. Just what Christy was doing <laughs> over at the Weather Wall. It's tough for one person to do it, let alone... It's tough for adults to do it, but it 50. seems like kids pick it up like that. Yeah, they do. Squire is here with sports, and uh, yeah, reaction uh, among the Canucks to that hit on the weekend. Nobody saw it. Yeah. I don't know. They do have iPads on the bench. They could have looked it up pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Elias Pettersson hit is... The talk of the town. So let's get through all of it. First up, he is out 7 to 10 days with a concussion. Now, it might be that short. It could be longer. We never know when it comes to concussions. And when he does get back, here's a question. He was fearless before. I'll give it to that kid. He's not very big, but he was not afraid to go in tough areas. Will, be, will he be as fearless going forward? The Canucks are going to have to have his back to help his confidence going forward. No more 
of what we saw Saturday. Yes, I know they were trying to win a game, but you got to show some moxie. More on that in a moment. The NHL, though, has suspended Mike Matheson two games for the incident. The NHL did not have a problem with the initial hit. The puck was there. Matheson's hit was within the rules. It was the throwdown after the hit that got him two games. That was the egregious part. Pedersen may have been concussed already, but that was out of pure anger, that throwdown for Pedersen deking Matheson out a few seconds earlier. A little bit woozy as he tried to get... Now to the reaction for the non-reaction. This might be the first time I can ever remember the Canucks win a game and a large portion of their fan base are mad at them. They wanted one of the Canucks to make it clear to Matheson and the Panthers that Pedersen is off limits. Doesn't have to be a Bertuzzi on Steve Moore kind of attack. Just get in Matheson's face. Let him know. But that didn't happen. And Matheson had five shifts after the hit. The Canucks, of course, were protecting a 3-2 lead. But you need to send a message, not just to the Panthers, but to the entire league, that the Canucks will not tolerate this. Sadly, they didn't do much in the past when Besser was hit or, of course, when the Sedins were bounced around. Travis Green was asked about the non-reaction today. You know, I'm pissed off right now still talking about it. Uh, I will say that I didn't know what happened. And none of the players on the ice knew, none of the players on the bench knew what happened. And like I said, I'm, I'm as mad as many fans about this with what happened. But I do stick by what happened the other night. And as far as retribution or anything like that, I am not going to comment on that whatsoever. So do not bother asking me. You can come to me. Uh, now, Elias Pettersson wasn't the only guy hurt on Saturday. Jay Beagle broke his arm blocking a shot. He's out four to six weeks. That means the Canucks have brought back Adam Gaudet from Utica. They called him up today, and he'll probably play tomorrow. Gaudet has two goals in Utica, and I want to show you this one right here. It's a highlight reel toe drag special. I want to show you it, but I'm not sure I'm going to be able to. <laughs> oh, there it is. He'll likely take Pedersen's spot in the middle of the second line with Nikolai Goldobin and Louis Erickson. Might even get some power play time on the second unit. Good to see him back. But tough way to get him back. All right. Uh, now, Trevor Linden. This is jumping all over the place on me, but I want to talk about Trevor Linden for a second. No, wait a minute. Okay, yes, yes. Trevor Linden was promoting a new venture called Orange Theory Fitness today. It was his first chance. It was our first chance, I should say, to ask him on camera his thoughts on what happened between him and Canucks ownership this summer. But just like the Aquilinis, Lyndon is not really prepared to give us much insight into why they split. All I can say is I'm excited about the future of, uh, um, you know, with Orange Theory Fitness and Club 16. I've got lots going on in my life. I got a one-year-old uh, uh, that uh, takes up a lot of time. So. For me, I, I, uh, I loved uh, being part of the organization and representing the Canuck fans around BC and around uh, the world. And um, you know, there's a passionate group, and, and I had a lot of fun doing it. But uh, life goes on, and, and um, my life has changed with, like I said, a young son. And, and now, uh, getting back into the fitness business, Orange Theory Fitness is going to take up a lot of my time. And excited about that journey. Okay, so far this season, the Vancouver Giants have been coming up big night after night. They have some of their best goaltending we've ever seen them have. They have a top prospect in defenseman Bowen Byram. And they have a team that can get goals from all over the lineup. (laughs) 
The cheers will only get louder for the Vancouver Giants, who are off to their best start in a decade. Through their opening 10 games, the Giants have earned 17 of 20 available points to sit atop the Western Conference. I think we hoped that we'd have a start like this. I don't know if we expected it. We're certainly happy about it. We're happy about it on a couple of fronts. Obviously, having having a 8-1-1 one one record is never a bad thing. We certainly going to need those points, but the fact that we can we can certainly be a lot better. Um, you know, we got a lot of room to grow yet. Sprung him down the middle. Now Byram dancing in on his backhand scores. And this Holy team Byram. will grow. Down Defenseman middle, Bowen Byram is one of the Giants' best and players, and he's only 17. Vancouver also has one of the best goalie tandems in the Western Hockey League, led by Arizona Coyotes draft pick David Tendick, who's joined in the crease by rookie Trent Miner. We have, you know, I, I, best goaltending I think we've ever had and, uh, in that tandem. And uh, It's a whole new Giants team, from the front office to behind the bench. Michael Dick is a demanding yet nurturing head coach who has this young Giants club ranked sixth in the country, a ranking that'll likely climb higher after they knocked off previously unbeaten Victoria this past weekend. You know, I definitely think we have a chance to you know, win the Western Conference. I mean, I think we have all the talent, you know, we have all the work ethic. We just have to play the right way, and we can definitely take the BC division for sure. I mean, we're dealing with kids, so they're, they're changing every day, as other teams in the league are too. So we certainly uh, like to be recognized for that, and, and it shows the fans that, you know what, we have a good product, and they should really be coming out to cheer the team on and see what we're doing here. But you know what, it's a small step. Our goal is Memorial Cup. It's uh, not to be weak ranked all year and not win the cup and that may not mean anything to us. That's really our ultimate goal is something we want to We mentioned earlier in the show about the death of Paul Allen. He of course owned the Seattle Seahawks and really if it wasn't for him, the Seahawks may have moved out of Seattle in the mid-90s. Their former owners were not very happy with the old kingdom and they were threatening to take the team to Southern California. That was until Allen bought the team and ensured it would stay in Seattle. And of course, he won Super Bowl 48 as the owner of the Seahawks and nearly won Super Bowl 49 as well. There you go. You have to wonder if the sharks at Toronto's Ripley's Aquarium might need counseling after a traumatic experience over the weekend. A naked man diving into their tank twice in front of shocked spectators. Oh my God. Your eyes aren't deceiving you. That is a man in the buff in the water with sharks. Stunned onlookers recorded these videos and posted them online. Like Carl, who shot this while on a date with his girlfriend. Because we saw him swim around. He was doing his thing. He was like a man mermaid underwater, doing like these like weird like swimming dance. He's doing like breaststroke. Officials with the aquarium say it appears this was intentional. The man simply entered the aquarium, went straight for the dangerous lagoon overlook, took off his clothes and jumped right in. The security was saying like, get out, get out, get out. So we finally got out. Once he got pulled out of the water, he stood in front of the security and did a full backflip right back into the water. Whenever we have an, an incident, you know, we review our internal policies procedures. So we are looking at that again, but it, you know, it's really not much we could do with someone who really wants to uh, you know, climb over. Toronto police were called to the aquarium, but by the time they arrived, the nude swimmer was already gone. Ripley's GM Peter Doyle says it's not in their protocol to detain guests. I've worked in Hong Kong, Singapore, Manila, Dubai, Taipei, in attractions and a lot of aquariums plus work through Canada and U.S., and I've never had an incident like this in the past. People visiting Ripley's weren't too impressed either. A man walked in 
took off his clothes and jumped straight into the shark tank. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Is he crazy or what? <laughs> what were the, his motivations? That's the million dollar question right yeah. now. <laughs> But he yeah. went for a swim. Well, what do you think about that? Well, I think the guy had to be having some issues with it. Because to do that, If you recognize this rogue Ripley's reveler, you're asked to contact Toronto Police. Once he is identified, he is wanted for a mischief and interfere with property investigation. Oh my God. Shalima Maharaj, Global News. And wouldn't you know it, the story has a BC connection. Toronto Police released that picture of the man they say jumped into the shark pool, and that is 37-year-old David Weaver of Nelson, BC. They say he's also wanted in connection with an assault earlier that night, and they are asking for the public's help in tracking him down. If you know where he is, contact the authorities. Uh, okay, maybe it'll be maybe people will be in the buff down at Wreck Beach with the sun that's coming. <laughs> Well, the next week. it's certainly going to be warm enough away from the water. 16 near the water tomorrow. I guess that's still warm enough to be in the buff. Maybe. A little nippy, but <laughs> <laughs> certainly in the morning it's colder, so make sure you bundle up and you take your layers off for the afternoon. All right. Good stuff. Thank you. Not Thanks. all the way off, though. Not yeah, all the way off. I'd recommend right. that in this water. Have a great day.